You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Let's get into this, uh, let's get into this conversation together. So we're starting a new series on risk, reward, wind, and spirit. And I realize that when we talk about risk, it can sound a little hokey. Uh, you know, I, this isn't normally my jam. If you are part of this church, if you're visiting with us, this isn't normally how I personally, when I get with the staff to try and discern what it is that we need to receive as a church and where we are in the season. Um, I usually don't opt for topical series too much. I mean, I, everything, I guess, in some ways is a topical series, meaning that we take a topic and we work our way through scripture. But I normally like to go through story. Today, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to be all over the place in the Bible. So you're going to need your church app. Um, if you are part of this church family, the, the church center app, everything you need is on there. If you have version on your phone, you can go to version. You can go to events. You can find Williamsburg Christian Church. You can click in there, and it'll get you all the notes that you want. So if you're a notes kind of person, you can either take them, or you can just receive them as they are here to be, to be present uh, in this space with us. If you want my manuscript when I'm done, I'll be glad to share it with you as well. And if you want to go deeper in what I'm talking about, then you can come to Theology Thursday, which happens Thursday nights on Zoom from 6.30 to 7.30. But we'll talk more about that here in a moment. So as we think about this thing called risk, I wanted to start off with this simple idea, okay? What do honeys make? This is, this, I'm sorry, <laughs> mead. <laughs> Honey makes mead. <laughs> Y'all have a good day. What do bees make? Right, not chocolate syrup. What do silkworms make? Yeah, not there. The silkworms aren't trying to figure out how to make polyester, right? What do you, I'm not going to ask this question. Humans make futures. That's what we create. We create futures. Here's what I mean by that. Life doesn't just happen in this world. We make life happen. We don't just sit back and hope that life just kind of takes us on for this ride. We actually join God. We are made in the image of God as the people of God, formed with the power of God, to join God in creating futures. We have a purpose and a place to make things happen in the world. We have that power, that faculty. Now, if we don't set our lives out into creating a future, a future will happen, whether we are participating in creating it or not. And if we just let the future happen, then we may find ourselves in a future we don't want to be in. Or we can learn what it means to the people of God to do the things that God has called us to do, to take the risks, to trust that God has already secured the reward, to live by the power of the Spirit, to let the Spirit blow us through the world as the holy wind and breath of God to create the kind of future that God has in mind for each one of us and for others. We can create a future that is for the good of others and also for our good. And so that's essentially what this series is going to call us into contemplating. Which means there are going to be four questions that I'm going to want to ask of me, of you, of all of us during this series. Question number one, will you risk what it takes to join God in making a future for yourself and others? 
We're going to explore that question over the next four weeks. Question number two. Do you believe you can take the risk because you believe Christ has already secured the reward? And we're going to talk through that question. And then this is my favorite question and probably the most convicting question of all. Will you let God put you in a position to live what you believe? That's a whole different kind of question. That question is more easily answered when we answer the first two. And then a question that we have to ask that we cannot neglect because there's a lot of conversations about what risk is and what risk isn't is question number four, what is motivating you to take the risk? So those are the four questions we're going to ask over today. We're going we're to flesh through them today and then we're going to examine them over the next four weeks in different ways. But what I want to do right now is I want to define some terms because we, it's helpful if we have the same language house. If when I say risk and you say risk, we know what we mean when we say it. So risk is, read this with me, letting God put you in a position to live what you believe, including doing hard things in the face of what seems impossible, but never doing it alone. So when I'm talking about risk, I'm talking about letting God, that looks like something, the letting part, put you in a place to live what you believe, to live your confession. If you say, I believe in a God who can do all things, then will you let God lead you to a place to do those things? I believe in a God of the impossible. Will you let God lead you into the impossible? I believe a God who provides. Well, will you be generous enough to trust that God will provide? I believe God calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, will you love your neighbors as you love yourself? I believe God calls us to love enemies. Well, will you love your enemies? Like, will we let God put us in a position to live what we believe? That's the risk. That is risk, as I'm trying to offer it in light of the biblical narrative. Then there's reward. Everybody say, a commitment to the belief that with struggle comes strength, and with perseverance comes purpose, because God's promises never fail. That's how I'm defining reward. That with struggle comes strength, and with perseverance comes purpose. And all of that is possible, and frankly only possible, because God's promises do not fail. Despite what I feel, think, or see, or even believe in a moment, that if we're going to say we believe in this, whatever that may mean, then we have to reckon with that, whatever that may mean. And then, of course, we're going to talk about the wind. And when we talk about wind, we're talking about the Greek word pneuma. Everybody say pneuma. Numa is the Greek version of the Hebrew word ruach. Everybody say ruach. Ruach is the word for spirit, translated spirit in your Bible. Numa is translated spirit in your Christian Bibles. But in its Greek language, numa literally could be translated and means wind or breath. And ruach means wind or breath. And so when the writers of the Christian scriptures are writing and they say the word numa and they say the word so where you see the word spirit. It's the word pneuma, which could mean wind or breath. And we remember Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus about the wind blowing where the wind wants to blow, so it is with the Spirit. Remember that whole conversation? So wind and breath become a metaphor of the Holy Spirit of God, of that person of the Trinity, which, by the way, is a person, not an it. That person of the Trinity, who is at work in the life of God's people, the actual real presence and power of God at work within us. And so this is what we mean when we say risk, reward, win, and spirit. And all of this conversation for me, y'all, 
is coming from this verse that we read several weeks ago that just I have not been able to let go and I've asked the Lord and it seems to me that it's a verse we need to hold on to as well, particularly in this season of life. And it's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Especially when you think of Hebrews 11 as the so-called faith hall of fame where it lists all these people. And I want you to remember the context of Hebrews 11 is for some people it ended well and for some people what? It ended poorly. But either way, all of them ended it with Jesus or with God specifically in the promise of what God said would come in the Christ, right? So when you read Hebrews 11 in this faith hall of fame, it's not all happy-go-lucky. It's, it's, it's hard and it's messy and it's complicated, but in all of it, it is built on this belief. Hebrews 11:6. now without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must, read it with me, believe that he exists. Let me pause there. For many of us, that's low-hanging fruit. Right, like that's the most basic thing. Some of us may be struggling in that belief and that is completely okay, wherever you are in that struggle. But that's just like, that's the, that's the basic thing. So first off, those who come to him must believe that he exists, but then here's the part that I'm not sure we all believe. And there may be reasons for that and some of which I think are good. And that what? He rewards those who seek him. And what I find interesting about this text is the writer of Hebrews is saying, in a sense, faith is kind of bound up in this idea that first off, you believe that God is and that he rewards those who seek him, that he's good, that he's faithful. And all of his mysterious complicatedness of being God, of all of his incomprehensible nature and ways, because after all, if we could comprehend God, then it's probably not God we, we know. That, that, that he rewards those who seek him. And since I'm offering an understanding of risk as letting God put you in a position to live what you believe, including doing hard things in the faith of what seems impossible, then I wanted to offer some scriptures throughout this conversation today as we lead off. And we're going to be all over the place. So here's my request of you. Make sure there's a danger when a preacher gives you lots of scriptures in one sermon. And the danger is that the preacher could make a scripture say what the preacher wants it to say in light of the topic that the preacher is preaching. There's a lot of preach. I think that I have dealt with the context of each one of these scriptures as well as I can to make sure that I'm not making the scripture say something I need it to say for the purposes of this conversation. But what I need you to do is to test that. So take the scriptures that are offered today and test it. Run with it. Challenge it. Look at the context around it. And then if you want to talk deeper about it, call me, or better yet, come to Theology Thursday, <laughs> where we will do all of that. So we're going to bounce around, so buckle up. So the first text that I wanted to come out of is a story where the disciples find themselves in a position to do the impossible. They've tried to do, they've tried to cast out this demon They've done everything they could. I almost imagine the apostles lining up in a line trying to cast out a demon. Nothing works. So a person comes to Jesus and says, hey, your disciples are blowing it. They can't seem to cast out the demon. And so Jesus says, okay. And so Jesus comes and casts out the demon. And the disciples go, well, how did you do that? And Jesus said, well, it only comes with prayer and fasting. And I can imagine the disciples going, wish we would have known. But then Jesus says, but you had a little faith. Now, it's important to put the things together. It only comes out with prayer and fasting and you had a little faith. And so then Jesus says, for truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, 
You will tell this mountain, move here to there, and it will move. Read this with me. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, there's a problem in this text. And the problem isn't the text itself. The problem isn't the wording of the text. The problem is how we often define faith. For many of us, faith is belief. And so when we read this text, we think Jesus is saying, you didn't believe hard enough. You didn't believe deep enough. You didn't believe good enough. And so then this text presents all sorts of problems. When we beg God to move a mountain and the mountain crumbles right on top of us and then somebody preaches this text and now we leave going, I didn't believe enough. Okay, if you've been at this church long enough, you should know where I'm going. The word faith in the Greek is a word pistis. Everybody say pistis. Everybody say it again. Okay, yes, yeah, say it like you mean it, even though it's a borderline inappropriate word. Say it anyway. All right, I know. The word pistis literally means loyalty, allegiance, fidelity. It doesn't mean belief. It assumes belief. Because you can't be loyal or allegiant or faithful to something you don't what? Believe in. But when the Bible uses the word pistis and it translates faith, it's not talking about intellectual belief. It's talking about loyalty and fidelity. It's talking about the language of faithfulness. Which is why we say faithfulness means commitment and loyalty, right? That's, we don't argue with that. Well, what's the root word of faithfulness? Faith. Faithfulness. Full-on commitment, Right? Faith, pistis, means loyalty, allegiance, fidelity. It doesn't mean belief. Which is why if you read the Greco-Roman literature, this is nerdy, but bear with me for a minute, that's going on at the time of Jesus' day, and you hear the general or the commander ride up on the horse in the stories and says, have faith in your king. The commander's not saying believe in your king. The commander's saying be allegiant to your king. Fight the fight because you're loyal to your king. Faith, pistis, means allegiance, fidelity, reliability, commitment, loyalty. And so what I think Jesus is saying is, if you're just holding on to trusting me, if you're just holding on in allegiance, if you're, just, if you're just struggling to remain loyal and you're holding on to your loyalty to me just by the skin of your teeth and the tips of your nails, you will do anything. Does that change how it reads now? Because what does Hebrews eleven six 6 say? God rewards what? Those who what? And so if I'm loyal to him, even if by the skin of my, by the hair on my chinny chin chin, anybody know what that's from? Yeah, that's right. About to spit some bars. By the hair of my chinny chin chin, like then I know, like then of course, then of course God's going to move because nothing's impossible for me because nothing is impossible for who? God. And if I'm loyal to God, who am I with? Come on, this is going to be the same answer over and over again. If I'm not going to give up and I'm going to stay with God, then who am I with? If I'm just barely clinging, matter of fact, if I'm just crawling, crawling on my hands and knees behind Jesus, who am I still following? Yeah, that was a different answer. Jesus. This isn't Jesus saying, hey, if you believe more deeply, then you can move mountains. What Jesus is saying is if you just hold on to your confession and you stay with me, you'll see that I'm the one that can move mountains. When Scripture talks about faith, it isn't talking about intellectual belief. It assumes that. That's low-hanging fruit, too. It's calling us to loyalty, to trust, reliability. 
And Paul knew the risk. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, knew the risk and knew the possibility of impossibility better than most. He walked away from his political and religious power just to end up living a persecuted life that included being on the run in some cities, beaten and escaping more beatings, arrested and escaping more arrests, and even shipwrecked. He knew what it took to live by faith. He knew what it took to remain loyal to Jesus as Lord and experience the rewards that come from seeking God. He knew that God could do great things. And that motivated him to take great risks. And his life was living proof. And so then Paul, writing to the Christians in Ephesus, writes a prayer. And in the prayer, he has this line. And it makes all of the sense of everything that Paul has written in the first two chapters going into three chapters of this prayer. And then this is what he says in this prayer, almost as a benediction. He says, now to him, which is God, who is able to do, read it with me, above and beyond all that we ask or imagine. Hold on. According, though, according to the power that works where? In us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. God can do far more than we can ask or imagine according to the power that works where? Where? In us. The power that works where within us is who? The Spirit of God. The breath of God animating our lungs. The breath of God giving our bodies life. That's why Paul would say later on, the, the, the Spirit is the one who raised Christ from the dead. That same Spirit lives in you. I think God can raise some stuff up. Because the power that is within us can do far above and beyond all that we ask or think or imagine. That's what Paul is saying. The question is, will we receive this? This divine power capable of doing far more than we can ask or imagine, living in us. The question that I have to ask of me is then why do I live as if God is so small? Why don't we live as if God is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or imagine? And maybe it's because of what would happen if we do. What if we step out in faith and God and the God who is able to do above and beyond all we can think and ask? What if we fail? What if it doesn't work out and God lets us down? What if we're just plain wrong and think we stepped out in faith when in reality we stepped out in ambition and desperation or ignorance? I mean, I've been there. I bet you have too. I mean, what if we trust God with this and the prayer goes unanswered or answered wrong? Wrong for us. So the fact is, if I believe in a lesser God, I open myself up to lesser disappointments. I just play it safe. If I believe in a greater God, I have to open myself up to greater potential disappointments. And the idea of that is disorienting. Raise your hand if you've ever had somebody that you truly love disappoint you. Raise your hand if you still love them. First gather, you should have seen it. Like, none of the married people raised their hands during that question. They're like, my bad. I'm just saying. I was just there. I mean, just 
which is why we're not called, which is why we're called to faith, which faith means what? Come on, allegiance, loyalty. Because even if my belief in a greater God leads me to open, opens me up to greater disappointments, it's not going to be my loyalty that's going to be in question. It's going to be a whole lot of other things in question. And I may even come to God like the man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe you, but help my unbelief. But it doesn't change who God says God is. And if we were able to step back, we would know that it doesn't change what we've known God to be. And that is why I am offering a definition of reward as a commitment to the belief that with struggle comes strength. And with perseverance comes purpose. Because God's promises never fail. God has made promises that God will keep, even if what I feel or what I see says otherwise. The question is, will I put myself in a position or let God put me in a position to live what I believe or will I hold on to a lesser God and settle because I'm afraid of the mistake or I'm afraid of the failure? Which is why then we go to Scripture and we remember Hebrews 11, verse 6, that says, And God, what? Rewards those who, what? Seek Him. My first year as a minister, coming out of being a business executive, I was an associate minister at a church. It was kind of a two-year training thing. And I'd grown close with a particular family, and the man had passed away to go be with the Lord. And his wife called me and said, hey, have you ever done a funeral before? I was like, I haven't. She said, well, I want you to do ours and because um, you were close to him. And so, so I said, okay. I said, but can I, I, you know, I asked my, my preacher that I work with if, you know, how to do this. He said, well, call her and meet with her so that you can learn more about you know, what she would want to do, what she would want to remember in his celebration of life. And so I met with her and I sat on her couch. She sat on her couch and I said, well, what would you like me to know? She handed me his Bible. She said, in here is all you need to know. And I was like, well, that's not, I mean, I appreciate the, the, you know what I mean? Like, it's very Christian of you, but like, give me something more than that. Like, he believed in the Bible. Like, she said, really, I need you to, I want you to go home and skim through it. And so I went home and I skimmed through the Bible. And I noticed as I was skimming through the Bible in the margins was the letters T and the letter P. And all throughout was T and P. T and P, sometimes just T. Never just P, just T. T and P, all throughout. And it was everywhere. And so I called her. I said, I, I found in his margins, I didn't find anything else but underlined verses and a lot of T's and a lot of P's and sometimes T and P. I said, what does it mean? She said, well, every time he came to a promise of Scripture and he decided to make a choice based upon the promise of Scripture, he would write the letter T for try. And if in time he saw the reality of that promise, he would write the letter P for proven. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I want to be like that. There were some scriptures that were left unproven. 
And she said to me, but I also need you to stand up and say that what was a hope is now face to face and everything has been proven for him now. Come on now. Gives me chill bumps. Glad I'm wearing my hoodie. I want to be that. Because that's the faith that God has called us to. So it makes sense that in Hebrews chapter 11, later on it would go to Hebrews chapter 12 and says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right? Because we need each other. That's why one of the definitions of risk is to never do it alone. And one of the things that James, the brother of Jesus, taught us about this whole journey of faith and this whole journey of living a life of risk with a trust and reward is verse chapter 1, verse 2 And he said, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters. Now, I want to pause and remind you that joy doesn't mean happy, giddy. Joy in the biblical language means satisfaction. Everybody say satisfaction. It means a deep, settled contentment is what it means. It's a settledness of soul. That's what joy means. We'll rehearse this in Advent. See, this is why we need Advent, to remember what this is. Which then brings something into us that gives us a sense of like joy in the way we talk about it. But, but James says, consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. The testing of your loyalty. The testing of your allegiance. The testing of your commitment and your confession that Jesus is Lord. The testing of that will give you endurance because you're going to know how to hold on. Because with struggle comes what? Strength. You will have worked those muscles. And let endurance have its what? Now the key word is let. And that's where we struggle. We don't want to stay in long enough for the let to happen. We want to make. Everybody say make. And that's what we want to do. We don't want to let. And it says let endurance have its full effect. Read this with me. So that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Lacking what? Nothing, because you, you will have written in your Bible T and P. And you'll live in the T for a long time. You'll live in the triad for a long time. And there will be no proven. But if we hold on, we will see the proven. There we go. We'll see the proven. <clears throat> what I think James is saying is that in the struggle does come strength. And in the perseverance does come purpose. Because God's promises never fail. And in the end, we'll learn things about ourselves and about God that will change us. We will see God's promises come to life. But if we aren't living a life of tried and proven, then we may not see the promises of God come to life simply because we didn't open ourselves up to it. We didn't put ourselves in a position. We didn't let God bring us to a place where we actually then had to live as though we believed what we say we believe. And beloved, If you always do what you've always done, you will always be who you've always been. But if we are willing to step out and do something different, because we are called to create futures, if we are willing to step out and do something different, 
and trust that God will meet us in that, then we will be different because of it. And that will require taking the risk. And I think we can take this risk because Christ has already secured the reward. And I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about Hebrews 11.6, that God will reward those who seek Him. I'm talking about blessings. I'm talking about God's provision. I'm talking about the peace, the joy, the community, the purpose. I'm talking about what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, which no wonder why he would say what he said in chapter 3, because he said this in chapter 1. Now, this whole section is one long sentence, not, not 3 verses 6. The whole section, I think, to about verse 9 is really one sentence. So I'm kind of even just cutting out a sentence here. But Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, read this with me, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. Notice that it says it's already blessed us. The blessings are there for us. Again, God is too small for us sometimes. And so we don't believe this stuff. Or we say, well, this is stuff that prosperity preachers teach. Or whatever. We have different reasons for not believing this. But, but what it says is that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. Why? Because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished, I love the language of lavish, lavished on us in the beloved one. What Christ has secured cannot be taken. The question is, will we live as though we believe that Christ has secured the reward? Or will we play it safe? And if by chance we stumble because we, we decide that Christ has secured for us in the heavenly places the blessings to come so we can step out in the unknown and the unseen and the unexplainable. But if by chance we stumble and fail, can we still trust that with struggle comes what? Strength. And with perseverance comes what? Purpose. Because God's promises never fail. Which is why I think Romans 8, 28 exists in Scripture. Because the context of this entire section that Paul writes in Romans 8 is that the world is broken, that the trees are groaning, that creation is longing for redemption. Creation is. That's not a liberal agenda, by the way. That's a biblical agenda. Jeez. That creation is longing to be cared for and stewarded, waiting for redemption. And then Paul turns out and says, and sometimes it's going to go poorly, but we know what's going to happen. And then he says, and we know that all things work together for the what? Good. But, and that's where we like to stop. We like to stop there, but that's not where the scripture stops. It has a bit of a caveat to it. For those who what? For those who love God and are what? According to his for those who, are, those who are walking the walk, not just talking the talk. For those who are not just affiliates, but participants. Because there's a difference between affiliation and participation, right? We talked about that last week. For those who are pressing through, for those whose lives model the life of Jesus, even so broken and terrible 
So this isn't like a, a get-out-of-hell-free card verse that we can pull out because we made a whole series of godless choices without any regard for God's lordship in our life and just cling to this as a handle just because it's convenient. This is a promise that is given to those who recognize, what Paul recognizes, you're going to live in a world that there is trouble. There's going to be brokenness all around you, and it's going to crash in every which way from Sunday, and it's going to challenge your loyalty to Jesus. It's going to challenge your allegiance. And there are going to be some mountains that don't move because the reign of sin and death is tearing them apart. But even in all those things, God works together for what? For good for those who what? Love God and call according to His purpose. Now, my favorite verse in this whole section of text is the verse that I sent Stephen and Mabel. When I knew that Stephen and Mabel were just exhausted, I'd visited and they were just tired with Alex being in the hospital they were just tired. And there comes a point in our lives where we just have no more words to pray, right? Yeah. I just have prayed the same thing so often. I don't know what to pray. I'm just exhausted from the, from the idea of prayer as you sit there and you see your little daughter with a tube in her skull where they had to keep the hemorrhaging from her brain. And that whole experience from a, what she experienced. And so I sent him Romans 8, 26. I said, just sit with this. And you know what it says? Even in our weaknesses, when we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray, the Holy Spirit of God groans, groans for us, testifying with our spirit that we are God's. Even the Holy Spirit groans as creation groans, as we groan. But we groan with hope, which is why we need Advent. Because all things still work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And then Paul ends out this whole thing and says, and even if you start doubting that, know this, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. Remember, that's the rest of the text. Nothing. Nothing. I want to be very clear with you on this text. This text does not say all things happen for a reason. I'm going to be very clear with that in my own way. I'm going to throw this out at you. I don't believe all things happen for a reason. I don't believe the Bible teaches that at all. I believe the Bible teaches that God can give reason to anything that happens. Now, that's a powerful God. The reign of sin and death is at work in the world. It's going to wreck things. That's not God's doing. Sometimes the reason that things happen to us is because we made dumb decisions. Sometimes the reason that things happen to us is because somebody else made dumb decisions. Sometimes the reason things happen to us is because the reign of sin and death is after the world and the enemy is alive and well and the ruler of this age, though judged, is still at work in the world. As John said, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Know your Bibles, right? Like know the Bible. All things do not happen for a reason and all things do not happen for a purpose. God can give purpose to anything that happens and that's an entirely different way of approaching the world. That's an entirely different way of interpreting the things that happen in the world. There can be pain, there can be pain, and there can be purpose that comes from the pain. Because God enters into the pain with the pains of Christ and gives life to dead things. And that is good news. There is nothing in the life of the disciple that is irredeemable. 
God can redeem anything or anyone, even if the consequences linger or tear at us one cut at a time. We can press on because with struggle comes strength and with perseverance comes purpose because God's promises never fail. And I think that's what Paul meant when he wrote 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, and he said, Therefore, we do not give up, even though our outer person is being what? Destroyed. Destroyed. Our inner person is being what? How often? Day by day. day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight of glory. So the question I have to ask is, do I believe that I can take the risk because I believe Christ has already secured the reward. Beloved, we have no business fearing a future that God already inhabits. Unlike us, God is not bound by time and space. Christ is in all things, fills all things, is over all things, including time and space. God is already future, already present, already past. And I know that blows our mind, but that's, I think, who God says God is. And God is with us, and there's no place we can be where God isn't. But we do have to ask the final question, what's motivating our risk? Because a lot of times, if what motivates us is desperation or ambition, then it will end poorly. That doesn't mean God can't redeem it. That's the good news of God. But do we really want to have to do that? Which is why what's supposed to motivate us to take these risks is because it's the goodness of God who rewards those who seeks Him. The God who's already secured the reward. The God who's filled us with God's own presence to do far above and beyond all that we could ask, think, or imagine. And the God who puts us in a community to not do it alone. Because we're going to need to discern the risks we take sometimes in community, aren't we? We're going to need to ask someone who we trust spiritually, and physically, relationally, emotionally, someone that we trust who walks with Jesus, who looks a little bit more like Jesus to us, and ask them, this is what I'm discerning when you enter into this discernment with me. This is why we need something more than a devotional prayer life. Because we can't do it alone. We weren't designed that way. It meant that way. And we have to do some gut checks. And what we can know is that the risk is worth taking. We can know that God is with us in the midst of the decisions we have to make that may cost us something. We can remember the scriptures. And I close with this thought. We can remember the scriptures that Moses, an exile and murderer, was called by God to take a risk and join God in saving and liberating a people that Joseph, who was a prisoner and a slave, was called by God to take a risk and join God in providing food for his people during a famine, that Daniel, who was a captive and a slave, was called by God to take a risk and join God in bearing witness to the reign of God over his people in Babylon, that Ruth, who was a refugee, was called by God to take a risk and join God in playing a significant role in growing the family tree that would bring Israel the Messiah and the world the Savior. That Esther, a sex slave taken by a foreign king as a wife, was called by God to take a risk and join God in saving God's people from genocide. And that Ananias, this everyday disciple of Jesus, who in my opinion doesn't get enough credit, This everyday disciple of Jesus was called by God to take a risk and welcome Saul, who was a terrorist and a murderer of Jesus' disciples, into his living room so he could set him straight and become the Paul who wrote almost all the verses that we read today. 
And the way I figure it is if God can do these things with these folks, he can do it with us. Because as followers of Jesus and as a church, we are called from the city to remain a faithful presence in the city, to serve the city for the good of the city, to the praise of God's glory because of God's love for the city. And it requires a people who are willing to take the risk. And if you are willing to take the risk, and I'm willing to take the risk, then we will be willing to take the risk, and then everything will be different. Because then we will be the church who knows how big God is because we've seen God move. And then we will struggle because we will see God not move in the way that we prayed God would move. And so we will lament together. We will grieve together. We will weep together. But we will be together. And we will eventually see God turn our mourning into dancing. Come on now. But you have to decide for you. Okay, kind of first. And so if you want a practical way to do this, Latanya La, La and Jason, would y'all come on up to the table and um, um, praise man, come on up. If you want a way to do this, a practical next step, I mean, here's, here's a next step. Look in the worship guide. Seriously. Find the event that when you first read it, you said, ain't no way I'm going. And go anyway. All right, ain't no way I'm doing it. And do it anyway. If you want something practical right there, literally in your fingertips, do that. Or believe that God can give dead things to life and work on that relationship that's been struggling. Press in to love that neighbor that you don't love. Press in to love the enemy. Press in and be generous with your time or with your finances. Push yourself out there to trust the God who provides. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.